Frank Lampard, Rio Ferdinand, Joe Cole, Michael Carrick. Names regarded as the cream of English football in the last 20 years. But that quality of play and performance doesn't happen just randomly. And it's no coincidence that one club and one coach helped produce these and many other iconic players that have graced the top flight over the last four decades. Tony Carr is one of the most influential coaches of all time. And in his 43 years at West Ham, he honed his craft and helped shepherd player after player to greatness in the English game. His autobiography, Tony Carr, A Lifetime in Football at West Ham United, is out this month. Tony very kindly sat down to chat about his experiences as a top flight coach in professional sport. We started with a look back at the life of an apprentice footballer in the 1980s. Hi Tony, good to chat. Just to start off with, what was life like for a trainee footballer coming through the youth ranks in the 1980s football and specifically at, at somewhere like West Ham's Chadwell Heath training ground? The, the on-the-pitch activities, I would say, are very similar to now. You know, coaching is coaching. Obviously, uh, methods change and systems change, but the game stays, Is this game is the same. And basically, you're teaching the same skills, techniques, positional sense, et cetera, et cetera. But it's off the field where I think it's changed, whereas we, we used to take a very small number of, well, they called them apprentices then, and they're now scholars. Uh, we took a very small number, six or seven, you know, and they're taking upwards now of sort of 15 players per season for their squads, which I think is too many. I think they, sh- they should be a little bit more selective. And obviously in, in, in the 80s, in, in those days, um, you know, the Tony Cotties and the Paul Allens and players like that, Alan Dickens and George Parrish, I mean, they, they had to be in a lot earlier than the professionals at the start getting all the kit out and tidying all the boots up and, if the boots weren't clean, they had to clean the boots before they could go and get changed themselves. So there was little jobs to do. And after after training, very similar. My I used to sort of have um, maybe 14 players in total over two years, a two-year period, first year, second year. And um, we used to sort of give each, well, I used to give each player a specific role, a specific job, where those jobs have now gone. And um, they don't do any of those jobs at all the majority of clubs, certainly not at West Ham. Uh, and, and there's something to be said for that because they're there to be footballers, not uh, not skibbies. But at the end of the day, I think an apprenticeship is an apprenticeship. You know, it, I think it, te- it teaches you a little bit of respect. It, it shows you what you're trying to achieve in terms of the professionals that you're, if you like, serving, if you like. And um, it, it made you aspire to be that person that you were sort of cleaning the boots for, etc. Now, even in my day, you know, in the 60s, I mean, I used to take pleasure out of cleaning all the top players, you know, Hurst, Moore, Peters. I used to take pleasure in cleaning their boots and sort of be, oh, I'll clean Bobby Moore's boots today or Jeff Hurst's boots today or whoever it was, you know, what you didn't specifically have any individual at that in them, in them days. But um, it's those jobs that I think gave the player a sense of discipline and hopefully gave the pro a bit of respect and when I speak to present players now, you know, the Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard, which I've done recently, because I've just finished my autobiography, Danny, and um, due to be published in April, that they say they those um, days, because they did those sorts of jobs, it grounded them. It kept them grounded. 
you know, and if they stepped out of place, the senior pros would uh, slap them down, not literally, but, you know, verbally say, hey, steady. Now, when you've played 50 games for the first team, you can start telling me, you know, what you can and can't do. But so on, you know, it was that sort of banter around a football club. So it's, it was the jobs they do rather than, uh, and the numbers, the numbers were a lot smaller to manage. You know, in those days, I was the only full-time member of the youth team programme other than Eddie Bailey, who was, um, Eddie was like chief scout. But uh, in terms of the coaching side, and now they've got like 20, 30 full-time coaches in the youth programme, because obviously it's, it's expanded so much. So they're the big differences for me. How tough did you have to be mentally to make it as a pro? Yeah, I, I think that's been underplayed for many years. How strong you have to be and um, mentally. Physically, you've got to be strong, you've got to be fit, etc. That, 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 that was a given. But mentally, I think that was underplayed significantly. And I, I could even use my experiences in that respect, <clears throat> where I look back and maybe I could have been, should have been, uh, been a bit tougher mentally. But you've got to have um, good backing, good people behind you, people you can talk to. If it's not within the club, certainly outside the club. And remember, in those days, nobody had agents other than the very top stars had uh, had agents. Certainly, if you didn't have a good network of people around you, whether it be family, friends, siblings, uh, older siblings, that maybe say, well, you think about this. Maybe you should do that. Maybe you should go and ask the manager. Maybe you should speak to the coach. Because you were very much in those days told what to do and you just got on and did it, whether it was right or wrong, whether it was good or bad. Whereas today, there's a lot more support around that, those sorts of issues. And I can remember players talking to me, not as a coach, but as a young player, saying, oh, I can't handle this, you know, like the banter, you know, the pressure, the demands being made upon young players. I mean, bearing in mind, I left school at 15 on the Friday, finished my paper round on the Sunday and started work, in inverted commas, on the Monday as an apprentice professional football at West Ham. And my introduction to that was get on the coach, we're going to Hainaut Forest and you're running through the forest, you know, with seasoned professionals. And you thought, oh, this is a real shock to the system. Whereas nowadays, you know, that they're led in, it's, you know, they've got inductions and et cetera, et cetera. We had none of that. So we, we were at that, that, that age expected to have the same knowledge and understanding and the same strengths as the professionals. You know, I think a lot of us suffered for that in some ways. You never said anything about it, but in your in your moments, home on going home on the bus or the train and sitting at home alone, you started thinking about oh, that was hard today. You know, well, you know, I don't know if I can do that tomorrow. My legs are killing me, and I, you know, you very had yeah, very very uh, few people to turn to. So I think yes, I think it's it, it's massive, and and especially today with the exposure of um, the media, the explosion of of media and TV and the first for stories and the first for information about players, private lives, marital status, and 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 so on and so on. The mental strength of everybody is uh, of every player nowadays. You, you've got to be very tough and very strong and be able to, be able to ride those downtimes, because the road to the top isn't a straight road. You know, there's bends and turns and twists, and and uh, you have to deal with it. And what do you think is worth or would have been worth keeping from that era and what needed to change and maybe has or hasn't changed? I think from my point of view, I think our facilities were very basic. So that has improved immensely over the years. So that needed to change. 
needed to improve. Although John, John Lyle was very innovative in terms of, you know, we had a sports hall before most other clubs had a sports hall. And, um, you know, he saw the, the value of that. I think there's been a lack of a little bit of respect and discipline in, in some quarters. Not all. I wouldn't paint everybody with the same brush. But generally speaking, I think uh, the young player today, because of, you know, social media and they have one good game, they post that, they post one highlight on, a, on an Instagram or, or a Twitter account. And, and, you know, people send replies, oh, what a great goal, you're a great player. I think they can get carried away with this. And I think they need to stay a little bit grounded until they've really established themselves. And um, I don't think those, some of those things do them any favours. Back in the early days, there was none of that, obviously. No mobile phones, no internet. The only media you really dealt with was the, the local New Ham recorder or the, you know, the local rag. And uh, very little in the senior press, the national press, other than first team stuff, first team matches. You can't stop the way the game and the way society has evolved, but sometimes you, you, you can hanker back to maybe simpler times and more to make sure that the players are focused on what they're there for. Now, they, they won't be top players in six months. You know, they might not be top players in six years. They're leaving school at 16, but it's about staying focused and that mental strength and obviously having the respect for the players that's gone before them and have, uh, are playing at the top level. So some of those things, Danny, I think... Uh, are still missing and, and, and could be improved. Steve Tung, who was uh, LBC football correspondent in, in this era, yeah. he said that if he wanted an interview, he'd go down to the training ground and the players would be sitting around in the morning having their egg and chips or their egg and bacon and uh, maybe a cup of tea. Didn't sound like sports nutrition was really top of anybody's uh, agenda at that <coughs> particular point. That slowly started to change. John, to be fair to him, was one of the very first people to bring in what I would call now. She was probably a, she was a lady named Angela Cannell. She was a hockey player and um, a sports nutritionist. She came in and started to introduce, and I think we were probably one of the first clubs to introduce drink breaks during training because it was it was unheard of, absolutely un, unheard of that you would break training for a few minutes to, to rehydrate, especially you know in the summer months you know, on hot days, but basically most days because you're running, sweating and working, you're, you're dehydrating, and which, which affects performance. We all know now, but those things weren't really studied, if you like. I mean, to be fair, when John was sacked and Lou Macari came in, he was very, very conscious of what the players were eating, what they were drinking, because Lou was fitness fanatic. He was teetotal and um, on, you know, on the brink of being paranoid about what the players ate and drank and started to change certain aspects of the diet. And obviously, when the Premier League kicked in a little bit later on, you now with more money and more information, and people started to employ sports science and, and nutritionists, and you look upon it now, and it's a world away from what it was. So the game evolved in that way, as did fitness and fitness training and schedules. Very few of them do what I did as a young player now. You know, you come back for pre-season training and your first week to 10 days is running up and down Epping Forest, you know, on the roads, up the hills, you know, with no drink until you got back to the training ground, you know, two hours or, or more later. And uh, even then they put the cups of drink on the table. And if you weren't one of the first in, there'd be others drinking your one and, and you get there, there's nothing left. And, you know, all, all that silly stuff. But <laughs> it was, um, you know, basically a free for all. But now everyone has their individual drink bottle 
and uh, things were a little bit more organised and, and, and there's people there making sure that people are drinking enough, eating properly, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, massive changes in that department, massive, for the better, I might add. The Premiership came along and then you got the Sky coverage and greater profile and scrutiny. And did that change things from your point of view at the training ground, the way that you trained, the way you organised yourselves? Obviously, it affected things at the top because you were under greater scrutiny and the analysis of every game that you were in a live game you know, if your fitness weren't up to scratch, it would be highlighted. So you were very conscious of those things. And even your image as a, as a coach, as a manager, was going to be scrutinised, you know. I mean, I can remember back in the 70s, very, very early days, when I went back as a part-time coach. And you can still see pictures of it now. There's Ronnie Boyce and John Lyle on the touchline in the first-team game, smoking, you know, with, you know, fags, you know, et cetera, smoking and yeah, which was the norm for, for a lot of people. There was a lot of smokers around that time. Can you imagine a Premier League manager sitting on the touchline now with the TV scrutiny every game smoking? It just, it, it just wouldn't. So your, your, your media image, your public image was, was there to be scrutinised. So obviously there was greater thought and store put by that. So there was a great scrutiny on, on everything from fitness, nutrition, appearance and your media image. And then obviously, at the same time, you've got to get a team that keeps winning football matches, and which is your primary job. So, yeah, there's a lot more pressure now on managers than there was, you know, in the 70s, 80s. You know, when West End, I think you mentioned, when West End got relegated in 78, you know, it, it wasn't the financial disaster it is now. So West Ham had, a, had, a, had a quite a good following, you know, the upper 20s at that, in that period, and predominantly kept them for a couple of years or however many years it was in that, second division the second tier West Ham started the 1980s as uh, FA Cup winners yeah and that was really the last time a second tier team actually won the FA Cup did we start to see in the 1980s the real broadening of the gap between the big four or five teams and and the rest of the league yes I think we did West Ham were always in the middle to lower reaches of, of the division flirted with relegation more than once and if we produced through our youth program quality players, not everyone, but inevitably that they would move on. I'm, I'm thinking of the 80s. I'm thinking of Paul Allen. I'm thinking of Tony Cotty. I'm thinking of Paul Ince that were top players and went on to prove they were top players. And Paul being Paul Ince being the first black captain of England. So we sort of lost our star young players. And that continued in the 90s as well. So West Ham were always, if you like, a little bit punching above their weight, a little bit, because of the financial restrictions within the club. They were, they were owned by the local businessman, Mr. Len Kearns, who had a, a, a building business, and Mr. Reg Pratt, who was the chairman for a long time, had a, had a timber business. You know, so it was harking back to the days where the local businessmen owned the local football team, and that sl- st- slowly started to change. So more money came in, Sky TV came in, more money. So it put pressure on the, the likes of West Ham to know where we're going to find this money. You know, when the Taylor report kicked in as well, you know, with all to Stadium, now there was millions had to be found and, um, and lots of clubs found, and West Ham, one of them, found it very, very difficult to, to fund that. So what assets have you got? Uh, the only assets you've got are players as a football club. And um, there was a tendency to sell your best young players or the players that could, could command a good price. 
So th- th- there's always been a tendency for that at West Ham, you know, through the 90s, selling other players, Alan Dickens, good young promising player, sold to Chelsea. And then we had like Frank Rio sold, Michael Carrick sold, Joe Cole sold, John Clem Johnson sold. So there was always a tendency for, for West Ham to be able to do that. At the moment, there's a little bit more stability there. Now, they've established the Golden Sullivan era of uh, readdressed the, the horrendous debt they inherited through the Icelandic collapse and, and the crash in 2008, the financial crash, where we were, we were owned by Icelandic billionaires and overnight those billionaires were no more. And um, they had to sell with, with horrendous debts. Gold Sullivan took over and over the last what, 10, 12 years since they've had the football club, they've put the club on a more financial stable footing. And you mentioned those young players and... West Ham were really known for producing skillful technical players before the 80s and, and throughout the decade. Um, how did you do it? How was your approach yeah. different from other clubs in English football? Because English football in this period was really known more for its physicality and direct attacking, getting the ball forward quickly rather than technique. But West Ham had a conveyor belt of really strong, really skillful players. Yes. It- it's a question that's always been put put to me over the years. It's a difficult one to answer. All I would say it stems from Ron Greenwood, really, from the very early days. Someone said to Ron once, how do you like to see the game played, Ron? And he said, I like to see the game played well. Now, it was a very open response. But what he meant was, that if someone passed the ball, was it a, was it a good pass? How, how technically good was it? Now, if someone made a, a good run, how good was that run? How intelligent was that run? How intelligent was that goal? How good was that shot? How, how perceptive was that player? Did he, did he see that space with that player running? My job wasn't to create a winning team, although at times we did because we had good players. So if you've got good players, invariably you've, you've got a good team. Uh, my job was to improve them technically, to improve them technically, to improve their knowledge of the game, their understanding of the game, and to improve their positional sense. So in other words, understand the position they play, understand the game and what you're trying to achieve, where the space is, where the passes are, and improve them technically. And that was my role. So my training Monday to Friday, we had a game on a Saturday with the youth team under 18s. It wasn't about getting the team together and getting the shape of the team. We might do a little bit of that on a Friday, just so this is the team that's playing, this is how we're going to play. My drills, passing, practices, all the week was about improving technique, whether it be defensively, whether it be attacking, whether it be creative, whether it be finishing, whether it be crossing balls. It it was always about how good can you cross the ball into that space? How quickly can you do it? Can you do it in two touches instead of three or four? Because three or four touches takes time. One and two touches quicker. You, You can expose the space quickly. So it was all that talk. And it wasn't about just doing it. It was about Constantly doing it, repeating it, constantly repeating it. And, and my half-time talks weren't about, oh, we're losing 2-0. This is terrible. It was, right, how can, we're 2-0 down. How can we as a team approach this second half to try and improve our performance? So it was always about improving the performance rather than getting the result. Now, performance equals good result most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. So it was always about those things. And um, I used to get comments on the touchline from opposition that sometimes we weren't aggressive enough as a young team. 
you know, you don't tackle enough, you're not aggressive enough. Whereas we chose players for their technical ability, their desire, their commitment to get better. Strength, fitness was never a factor at that young age. Never. Never a factor. We didn't look at someone and said, no, he's 13, 14, he's not big enough or he's not strong enough or he's not fit enough. Because John always used to say, we can always add that later. You can always get someone fitter, even if they're 26. You can still get them fitter. You can still get someone faster in terms of using, Not you can't make them fast if they're not fast, but you can make them quicker to use the, the best of what they've got. But John always said, speed is in the head anyway. Ron always said, speed is in the head. If they see it quicker than their opponent, they're going to be in front of them anyway. So it was always looking at those things. I think made us a little bit different. But um, I wouldn't say we were unique. There was other clubs that were doing that. I mean, Chelsea were, always had a very, very good youth policy. I mean, Arsenal always had a very, very good youth policy, although a very aggressive youth policy. They were always tough to play against. Good side, though. Tottenham, we, we were always... When we played Tottenham, it was, it was going to be a technical game. Because, you know, with Bill Nick and they, they were very technically minded. They want to play the game. They want to play football properly, keep it on the ground, pass and move. You know, their famous uh, saying, you know, pass and move team, Eddie Bailey always used to tell me about that. So there was always teams that would be trying to do the same thing. But we always used to say, well, come to us. We'll, we'll make you better. If you're anywhere showing good promise, we'll promote you into the reserves, into the first team squad. And John always used to be very good at integrating the players. And to be fair to John, he knew all their names. He knew everybody. He ran the club, basically, top to bottom. You know, he, was, he would have made a very, very good director of football if he was, if he was there, although he, he probably enjoyed being the manager. So I think that was a difference, Dan, for me, you know, being there on the ground and seeing all those changes. You know, I was on the pitch, on the grass with them every day. For 40 years, I was on the pitch with them every day, the young players. So I'd like to think I had some influence, and my influence was... Ron and John, who influenced me and, and, and shaped me as a coach, really. You touched on John Lyle. Did his influence permeate the whole club when he was manager? Very much so. Everything. You know, he would, he, he would even be telling the board what to do. You know, he, you know, he wouldn't be afraid. You know, and, and I think he had that respect with the board that he could say, no, we ain't doing that. We've got to do this. No, we, this, we don't do it that way. We do it this way. And obviously, you know, he, he didn't have the financial backing that a lot of other teams and managers have got. But occasionally they, they, they went with John, you know, when we bought the record goalkeeper fee for Phil Parks and players like that. And we unearthed Eddie Bailey, unearthed um, Alan Devonshire from Southall for £5,000, which was an absolute bargain. So we were always on the lookout for promising young players in the lower leagues. And the, but occasionally John would go out and buy big, very occasionally. And the board inver- invariably backed him, you know, until the very end, really, when it he got, they got relegated and the inevitable happened. No, John ran the club. He ran the club top to bottom. He ran, you know, a lot of the times he would tell me what team to pick on a Saturday with a youth team. Now, I think you should play him this week because he would know all the players. No, I don't want you to play him. I want you to play him in that position this week. Let me know how he gets on. Let me know Monday what Harry does. And if West Ham had a home game at Upton Park on a Saturday afternoon, three o'clock kickoff, we would kick off at 11 o'clock at Chadwell Heath for a home game. John and Ron always used to come and watch the first half of the youth team. All the, every, every home game. If we, if we had a home game, they had a home game. They would come and watch the first half and then drift off at halftime and go to Upton Park. So they knew the players. And obviously they'd, they'd be watching me as well, seeing how, see what I'm doing 
uh, and occasionally they would make comments. I think you're a bit harsher than there. I think you sh- should have been a bit, you know, a bit more understanding there. He didn't really mean to do what he done, and did, you know, because of their more experience and more knowledge. And I'd go, yes, John, yeah, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. <laughs> but it, it shaped me, like all um, people over the years and through the generations. There's always someone you can look back and said he pointed me in that direction, or I looked up to him, and and I tried to be that person. Unconsciously, you copy their mannerisms uh, in some ways. So yeah, John was massive. John and Ron. John probably more so than Ron, because when I was a young 15-year-old, starting as an apprentice, John was my youth team coach, and then he obviously became the manager. So he was my youth team coach from way back, and um, so a massive influence on me, influence on me right through my career, really, up until the point he left the club. And finally, what's the name of the book, and when does it come out? My book, it's been, it's been published on April the 11th, Danny, and... Um, it's called basically Tony Carr, a lifetime at West Ham United. You know, and it spans. It, it's not an expose or anything like that. It's 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 basically my forty three years at one football club, and the book covers my whole uh, career from a schoolboy, how I started playing football, right through to the time that I left West Ham uh, in two thousand and sixteen. Although that was slightly under a cloud, that was only really one percent of 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 the. 100% that I loved about working for West Ham. And so other than that, you know, it's my football club. It's a great football club. And I hope West Ham fans and, and, and beyond enjoy reading it. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Danny. 